Now we're going to read James chapter 2. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For the most part, in sports, you see at the kind of little league, middle school, and high school level, a very strong sense of team. Like, most of the players on a high school team, they all grew up together, and there's always a couple guys who think they're better than everybody else, right? But, for the most part, at that level, you're all in it together together. You're just playing for the love of the game, for the camaraderie that you enjoy. You're, you care about the people on your team. When you, when you begin to get above that level and you've you got you know, 40 guys on a college scholarship that are on the same team, um, the ones that are exceptional begin to start playing for something other than the sake of team. They're playing for the NFL draft or the NBA draft or whatever sport they're in. They're, wanting, they're trying to look to go beyond all of that, and you start to see a, a shift in interest. And the great college football coaches uh, try to push back against that and create that sense of camaraderie and keep that all together. And it's easier at that level because no one's, well, I mean, Cam Newton was the highest paid player in college football when he played there, right? But most of these athletes are not getting actual, actually paid to play, right? Most of them. Most of them. Um, so once you get beyond that level to what we call professional sports, all bets are off. You, you have this vestige of team that you remember from childhood and high school and college, but 
at the end of the day, and you'll hear this, and you'll hear this in interviews, in post-game interviews, you know, hey, I'm here to do a job. I'm here to do a job. And the mentality has very much shifted from one of we're in this together to, well, I'm doing my job. And they get the fact that to do their job well, if they're really smart about it, it requires playing as a team. Like, that's not a foreign concept to these athletes. But things typically change, and, and there are a few rare professional coaches who manage somehow to salvage some sense of team out of a group of players who were all getting paid ridiculous amounts of money. Um, you know, probably the famous Vince Lombardi in football is the greatest example of that. You can, you can applaud if you need to. All right. Um, and then uh, maybe in basketball, it's our Greg Popovich in San Antonio. Uh, my favorite Greg Popovich t-shirt has his face blown up on the front of the t-shirt, and it's got Einstein's hair photoshopped onto Pop's head. It's awesome. But the interesting thing about Greg Popovich is if you want to play on his team, you have to be willing to accept his system. And his system is a zero showboating, share the ball, you have got to be willing to pass the ball. And there are NBA game plans that revolve around phenomenal players passing the ball only to get into position to get the ball back so they can try to score, right? To play on the Spurs team, you have to, ha- you have to know your place on the team and you have to work the system. And it may or may not come to your own personal professional advantage, but you also may or may not win a championship about every three years or so. Um, And so, just this aspect that truly being on a team involves this equalizing of your mentality of self to where you have to be able to see everybody else's value, everybody else's position in the collective success of your endeavor. And really, this is what James is trying to communicate to the earliest followers of Jesus, who all grew up Jewish. They all had been to synagogue. He even um, talks about that in, in his letter. But in the context they all grew up in, there were definitely the very well-respected haves, those who had material wealth, and the not very well-respected among them who did not have. The rich and the poor were regarded very differently in the context in which James grew up. And ironically, James would have grown up poor. Uh, His family was not by any stretch wealthy, um, which makes it all the more remarkable that he's now in this position as pastor of the growing church in Jerusalem. And so, James, maybe he's a little sensitive to this issue because of how he was treated growing up by wealthier members of his community. Uh, But he has very good insight into this idea 
that there's no I in team. And I wish Frank was still here. There is a me. You could pull a me out of there. That was, that was good. Pull me. Um, so let's just start kind of where James starts as he turns his attention towards this question. Um, that we are to treat everyone as our equal. We should be better at this as Americans. You know, that whole Declaration of Independence thing and all men are created equal. Um, And yet, every society, every cross-section of society, every grouping of people does this in one way or another. We elevate some over others, either by wealth or status or education or what have you. Um, one of my favorite moments in Hope Church was I'm standing in front of something, I can't remember what it was, but it's broken. There's two medical doctors, two masters of divinity, standing in front of the same problem going, no idea. Smitty walks up, fixes it, walks away. I'm like, hey, Smitty. Do you realize how many master's degrees were standing in front of that problem, not knowing what to do? And the, we, we, we all do this, right? We think that a degree makes someone somehow more respectable or better or whatever. And the truth is, in God's family, we're all equal. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So... We have to learn, if we're going to work God's system in our church, we have to learn to look past the external markers of human identity. James tells us, don't be fooled by appearances. Look deeper. Judge character by what is in a person's heart, not by how much they have or how much they've learned, or how prominent they appear to act. Look deeper. Look past those external markings to the truth of that person inside of them. And as we learn to do this, we learn to see the internal value in others. And this is really what James is calling for in this passage. You know, don't show partiality based on these external markers. Look deeper. See the real essence of the person you're dealing with. And the best way to do this is exactly what James does in verse 1 of the passage. Put Christ first. So you take one human being, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you place him on the pedestal. Everybody else is below that on equal level ground. And so James talks about, look, we're brothers, we're family, but we look to one person for glory, if you will. And we put Christ first, then we can see everybody else as our equal, as our brother, as our sister. Um. We do not do this naturally. 
but we are to this is what God calls us to. Brotherhood is the opposite of partiality. It is where we find community and unity, not division. And so James sees a growing problem in his ranks of people dividing on the basis of status. And he says, stop. Just stop. Everybody here is your equal under Christ. doesn't matter what they have or what they know or what they're showing. And so we're to trust everyone as our equal. And we are to keep a humble view of ourselves. Now, Mike Mitchell and I are really good at this. Humility, Mike, strong suit, absolutely. Me too. And I love to tell people how humble we are. Um, James understands human nature. And he's going to reach way, way back to the book of Leviticus and grab a verse that sort of pulls the two ends of the Bible together. He's just going to just remind these early Christian followers of Christ that they are to love their neighbor as themselves. He quotes a passage they all would have been familiar with and basically brings it home. We are to follow the golden rule of which love is the key. I've thought about this a little bit this week. If you are operating on the basis of love, there's no, there's no status there. Like, I might find some people easier to love than others, but if I'm loving everyone in my life, there's no one that has, does that make sense? The status thing is gone. It's an equalizer. And James calls us all back to that ancient truth that we as members of God's family are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love is the key and by the way your neighbor is everyone. You don't get off the hook uh, because they don't speak your language or have uh, live in the same neighborhood as you or whatever. Um, We are to follow this higher law of love. And so, love forces a sense of humility. I cannot think of myself as better than you if I'm loving you, if I'm genuinely expressing love to you from the heart. And so, while we follow the golden rule, we have to realize we are all in the same boat. James does a great job of saying, if you break one of the commandments, you've broken all of the law. And every Jew understood that the qualification for being in good standing with God was that you were obedient to the law. This was a no-brainer. They all got this. And so James basically rolls it out and he says, if you've broken any of it, you've broken all of it. You're not in good standing 
with God. And every one of these people understood they were broken, they were sinful, they were without hope apart from their Savior. And so, to realize that we're all in the same boat means that no one, is, it's knowing that no one is less sinful than anyone else. I really can't think of myself as less sinful than anyone else. I, that would be weird for me to do, but anyway. The idea being, if we've broken any of the law, we're all literally in the same boat, and by the way, it's sinking. And so, James points this out. We're all in this boat together. No one is less sinful than anyone else. And the purpose of God's law, one of its purposes, is to reveal to our hearts our need for Christ. This is so sort of the way the Ten Commandments work. right? You've got four of them that are your orientation to God, the first four. Like, get this right. Know that he's God. Keep him. Don't, don't go following other gods. Keep it all on him. Rest on the Sabbath, which means you're trusting him. And then the next five are about your relationships with other human beings. And then there's that tenth one. Because I'm pretty sure most people who think they're good will get through the first nine and they'll be like, yeah, I'm good. Clear, I haven't murdered anybody. Okay, maybe a little bit of a lie, but it wasn't a big one. You know, here or there, whatever. Um, But then there's the tenth one. And it goes right to here. It's about me and how messed up and selfish I am. Thou shalt not covet. Don't! I don't even need God to go any further. He does. He, he He unrolls that a little bit. But I'm done right there. Um, done. And James is effectively saying, none of us are off the hook. We're all in the same boat. And the reason that God's law is set up in such a way that we cannot fulfill it ourselves is to drive us to the cross. That's why it's there. It's one of its purposes. And so... There's humility in knowing I cannot save myself, which means I am completely dependent upon the grace of God through Jesus Christ for my forgiveness and good standing in God's kingdom. And so James moves on to tell us that we are to make grace our default. This is in the last two verses of the passage we read. Um, And James is contrasting two or maybe even three laws here. Um, He's contrasting the law of God, the legal requirements of the Old Testament law, which are summarized in a second law, love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he's contrasting those with what he calls the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the law of grace, the law of liberty. And I cannot emphasize enough 
how radical this idea would have been to James and to his followers that they were under a new law. One that was not a a sense of constant worry that they were going to break the law and fall out of favor with God, but one that was built on the fact that Jesus did fulfill the law and offered his life on their behalf so that they could be free and lift their heads and not live in fear, but live out of love and grace. And so this call to live under the law of liberty, James makes a very sharp contrast with the way the other law worked. You break one part of it, you're done. This law of liberty, Christ fulfilled all of the old law, and he offers that to you for free. You're free. And the terrifying thing about being free in Christ, if you've ever thought to yourself, well, does that mean that I can go do whatever I want? Yeah, actually it does. Is that what God wants you to do? No, it's not. But he has freed you from obligation to the law to allow you to truly and freely love. That's what he wants us to do. And so we live under a new reality. The contrast could not be more clear. Insofar as the old law helps us understand God's righteousness, this new law of liberty helps us understand God's love. He forgave you without condition, and therefore you are called to forgive others. The old law revealed our sin and our need for the cross. This new law of liberty frees us from the bondage of sin and allows us to live in joy, in hope, in love, as opposed to fear. Where was it? Sorry, bear with me a second. Um, Not finding my spot. Okay. Take a look at verse 5 for a second. James says, Listen, my beloved brothers. So, We're all equal. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Remember that word. Heirs of the kingdom. This is a forward-looking truth. It is where we place our hope that Christ has brought us out of this world into God's family. We stand in a point of inheritance, a future inheritance of eternal life, in Christ. That's hope. So you have the poor, they have faith, they have hope. Guess what the third one is? Hello. It's like James has read Paul, but Paul hadn't written 1 Corinthians 13 before James wrote this. Um, Which he has promised to those who love him. You have faith, hope, and love all wrapped up together right there for 
the poor in spirit, the humble, the people who've come under the understanding that they're dependent upon the love of Christ for forgiveness. And so this new law, the old law revealed our sin. This law frees us from our sin. We're to live under this new law of liberty and we're to replicate what has been shown to us. God did not show partiality or favoritism to us. He showed us grace, undeserved grace and love. We're to judge others as God has judged us. Uh, That is holding nothing against me because Christ has taken it from me. And then we are to show the active compassion God has shown to us. Um, The word there in verse 13 in Greek, I, I was just, you know, I looked stuff up just to make sure I got it right. This was a good one. You're expecting like a three-sentence definition of a word. It just says compassion, especially active. I'm like, active compassion, that's a good thing. God is actively or proactively compassionate toward us. He comes and seeks us out when we don't deserve his grace. He finds us, he redeems us. He restores us, and he says, now, take that model of what I've done for you and roll it out in your life. Go and actively be compassionate toward others. Spread my love. Show my grace. Be forgiving. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you have done for us through jesus christ that we were not deserving of your grace and mercy toward us and yet you were actively compassionate toward us to forgive us to redeem us to set before us a future hope that is secure that we might know that we are part of your family and therefore equal among ourselves that no one here is any better than anyone else, and yet we all look to you for the truth that is ours in Christ. And so, Lord, set this before our hearts and lead us this week to show to the people around us the love and grace you have shown to us through your Son. It is in his name we pray. Amen.